0: This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 619. I think we might, and this is another prediction, and I'm not an economist, but this is just my own personal belief. I think there's a decent chance we go through a period of stagflation. So normally you'd raise interest rates to stop inflation, but I think in this case, um, inflation's gonna keep going up, which makes affordability and cost of living also go up, but it's less affordable, so we might hit a recession, even though there is tremendous growth in prices, and, and that could cause a period of stagflation. So you could see some spiraling out of control in this way.
1: What's going on, everyone? This is David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast, the best real estate investing podcast, bar none. Today, my co-host Dave Meyer and I will be interviewing Lawrence Jankolo, the co-founder of Avail and the VP of Rentals at Realtor.com. Lawrence is passionate about helping landlords do their jobs better and make more money in real estate. And Dave and I have a fascinating interview with him where he shares how he uses technology to help do a better job with investing in real estate, which areas he invests in, which asset classes he likes. We get into some really good stuff. Dave, what were some of your favorite parts of today's show?
2: I think Lawrence provides some really practical, tactical advice on how to be a better property manager, uh, particularly in an uncertain economy, which we're seeing right now. But a lot of people talk about property management, whether you should cell phone or if you should hire a professional property management company, but don't talk about the actual logistics, nuts and bolts of what you should be doing, particularly as a new property manager. I know I had a lot of very embarrassing and painful lessons when I was first self-managing, and I think he gave some great advice on how to avoid some of those common pitfalls.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. We got pretty deep into what to look for in a tenant, what to avoid, how important choosing the right tenant actually is, and it's not talked about enough in real estate. Today's quick tip. Go to check out biggerpockets.com slash podcast. At Bigger Pockets, we have now put together a landing page where you can see all of the podcasts that we offer on specific topics, as well as learn a little bit more about the host and what you can expect from every show. So head over to biggerpockets.com slash podcast. Click on the real estate show to learn about me. Click on the on the market icon to learn more about Dave and see what Bigger Pockets has to offer you that you might not be aware of.
3: Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation owning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets.
1: Dave, my friend, so I got to admit, I have had my head completely z- zoomed in and focused on running the David Green team, running the one brokerage, and in the middle of a 1031 trying to find replacement properties. And I've been so focused on the individual details of making this happen that I haven't been able to pay as much attention to the market in general as I would like. But sometimes knowing what's happening in the market in general is actually more helpful than paying attention to a specific property because the market tends to move as a whole. So would you be so kind as to kind of filling me in on what you've been seeing, what you've been noticing. What's the talk in the real estate world today?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. I think there are two topics that are really top of mind for me. The first is inventory and just general inventory dynamic. And I'm sure you're seeing this in all of your businesses. But to me, it seems like the housing market is starting to have this sort of epic tug of war. And on one side, we have demand and you know it's just how many people want to buy homes and that with rising interest rate is showing signs of softening it's definitely not tanking but i follow things like the mortgage bankers association survey and they track how many mortgage applications people are putting in every every month and those are down about 10% year over year but so far There hasn't been a decline in housing prices and housing prices are still going up double digits year over year because of the other side of this tug of war, which is inventory, right? So even if demand starts to slip as it has been, if inventory remains as low as it has been for so long housing prices really can't go anywhere. Like you have to see inventory increase before the market can moderate. And so far, we just haven't seen that yet. In fact, if you look at new listings on a seasonally adjusted basis, which is the way you have to look at these things, you can't just say like, oh, listings went up from March to April. Of course it does. That happens every single year. But if you look at this on a year-over-year basis, new listings are actually going down right now. We just saw some new data came out that said construction permits were down 3%. You know, foreclosures, which a lot of people have been thinking are going to be lead to a glut of inventory, they're at they're at record lows. They've been going down for seven consecutive quarters. So right now in the tug of war, I'm seeing demand, even though it's down, is still far surpassing inventory. And that's just how I'm reading it right now that of course could change. And I think it will start to moderate and change, but to me... I that's the thing that I'm really focusing on to try and see where this market's going. What do you think about
1: all that? I think you're spot on. You're looking at the right things. You know, one thought that I had when it comes to the because really in a market where demand is steady or rising, <clears throat> it's supply that's the variable that controls the price, uh, and that's like that supply side perspective of, of economics will really help someone understand what's happening with real estate. And I was thinking about how housing was something that used to be tied to how many people needed a place to live. That was the only reason that real estate existed. So you either owned a house or you rented a house from somebody that owned it. It was pretty simple to figure out how much supply was needed in a given market. And people didn't move around the country nearly as much as they do now because they were tied to a location because of work and family support systems. And it's really technology that has created the ability for people to have – like you, you're living in Amsterdam right now and still doing your same job and still – living your life, like it's just become easier to be a human with technological advances. So all of the things we used to need, like you needed a family member that could watch your kid or could, could help bring the cup of sugar over if you ran out of money. Well, it's easier to connect with people when you move into new places. And obviously the work environment changing has played a role in this too. So people can leave areas much more quickly and easily than they could before, which makes it harder to regulate supply. How many houses do we need in Fargo, North Dakota, once people realize, I don't have to live in Fargo anymore, right? And the other piece is that now housing is not just a uh, place where people need to live. It has now become a business. So with people traveling through like short-term rentals, one house could you could have a house that you don't need as far as just how many people need a place to live in this city, but it makes a ton of money from people traveling to visit that city. And then you can start to get a hundred houses more than what you need that still make economic sense because people are traveling to use them. So now that the the short-term rental concept of vacationing and staying in someone's home instead of a hotel, combined with how much more frequently people can move around easily, has made it a lot trickier to figure out how much supply is actually needed. And I think that causes builders to be nervous about building homes because they don't want to build and then there's no one to buy. It's harder to tell. It makes it more difficult for the government to figure out what incentives to offer to get people to to build homes. It makes it more nerve-wracking for someone who isn't familiar with real estate to go buy a house in the first place. And it gives an advantage to the... the big the investor who has experience or institutional capital that's playing the long game to sort of weather the storm of some of those risks that a normal person wouldn't. And so it's, it's much more complicated to solve these problems than the last 200 years that we experienced.
2: That's a really good point. I think that the migration that's going on over the last two years, and it's slowing down a little bit, but not that much, still up well above pre-pandemic levels is creating this like reshuffling of supply and demand, and no one exactly knows what's going to happen. And if I can plug on the market, actually, I think given when this recording comes out, the next one that will be coming out is going to be a conversation with an economist from Redfin who actually modeled out all of the migration from a lot of from the the coast to the Sunbelt and how that's changing the dynamics of the housing market. So if anyone here is interested in those migrations, uh, patterns and how they might be impacting your market, you should definitely check that out. The second thing that I'm looking at right now is a recession. You know, I think you, we're hearing it across every media outlet right now that we're heading towards a recession. And the signals of recessions are sort of confusing right now. If you've heard of the uh, the yield curve, which is a really reliable predictor of recessions that inverted slightly, which isn't exactly a recession trigger, but you know, it's starting to point that way. There's something called the lead economic indicators, which tends to predict recessions six to eight months ahead of time. And it's basically been flat, but it's starting to decline. And so there are some concerning signs, particularly with the Fed continuing to raise interest rates that we could be heading for a recession. And I just want to say that recession, technically, all that means is GDP contracting for two consecutive quarters. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean you know, that there's going to be crashes in the housing market or the stock market. Those are independent things. Um, but just I think it's, it's worth noting that there are a lot of red flags coming up for a recession right now. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this.
1: All right, so this is me having to get out a crystal ball, which I always want to give a disclaimer. Don't make your decisions just based on like my crystal ball, which looks a lot like my head. <laughs> um, but I will share what I'm thinking. Very shiny. And I yes, exactly. <clears throat> I think, and I mentioned this before, that we are going to have a a. Uh, uh, economy where at the upper end of wealthy people, they're doing very well. Those that are owning assets, those assets are going to continue to increase in value because inflation is going to push their value higher. Those at the lower end of the spectrum are actually going to lose wealth. They're going to be squeezed. I don't think it's like a tide where everyone rises and everyone falls. You're going to see a division where the people that are in a position of advantage, where they own assets are going to do very well. The people who don't are going to get squeezed. And this is not uncommon to many things in the world. So if you're a basketball player right now in the NBA, and you're this really slow, seven foot tall, um, kind of useless guy that used to be really, really valuable in the NBA when shot blocking and everyone is trying to get close to the rim and you could be strong and tough and get rebounds. You're Those were the pe- people everyone wanted. Well, now it's the little guys with high levels of skill that with the current rule set where you can't touch people, you can't knock them around. They're doing better. This is just how life goes. There's There's shifts in who is in a position of advantage and who's not. I think we are likely going to see uh, the people at the lower end of the scale, unfortunately, be squeezed very hard as food prices are going to continue to increase, as gas prices are going to continue to increase. Um, Depending on what happens in the eastern part of the world where supply chains could, could be further disrupted, now we'd have to start making things in America, which makes them way more expensive than what we think is normal. So Paying $14 for a t-shirt is something we got used to. If you're making that in America, it's going to be much more than $14. And that's unfortunately going to affect the people that make the least amount of money. So I would expect to see in in some case, depending on, I don't know when it's going to happen, but I do think there, there will be a recession in that sense, but I don't think it's going to necessarily crush assets. I don't think you're gonna see a ton of wealthy people being super affected by this. They'll probably end up making more money, which is usually what happens with wealthy people when we head into recessions. Now, the other thing I'll say is I think that we have printed so much money that there's actually a bunch of it sitting on the sidelines waiting to jump in. So cryptocurrencies are down. The stock market is down. Um, there's a lot of traditional measures of value that we look at. And it's like, oh, we're going bad. You know, Bitcoin dropped, whatever. That could change in a day. There's, I think there's so much money sitting on the sidelines that if it rushes in, all of a sudden it was down to Bitcoin has record highs. It's so easy to see and many different kinds. Of crypto, so it's not enough just to look at what's happening right now. You have to understand how much money is playing in the market and how much is sitting on the sidelines to wait and see what's going to happen. And with talks of recession, wealthy people tend to withdraw their money out of the market, hold it in cash, and wait to see where the opportunity is before they rush back in. So I think that raising rates is a smart move if we're trying to stop inflation. I think it's just it's too little, too late. I think this is like a semi truck going down a hill and the brakes are out. And it's it's barreling down. That's why we're seeing asset prices continue to rise so quickly. And I think that rising rates is like just stepping on the brake pedal and you're, you're barely making an impact. It's going to affect people, unfortunately, that are least likely to be able to handle it. So that, that's the best description I can give is to don't look at it like the entire economy is going to move up or down as a whole. There are segments of the economy that are going to behave differently, much like this type of player in this NBA is going to do better than a different type.
2: That's a that's that's a very interesting take and I think unfortunately you're right that this is going to disproportionately impact those on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. It just seems that you know we're going to see layoffs um and, you know that's basically usually happens with a recession. Um and you also see inflation causing a situation where money is stretched further and further even if people do retain their jobs. I do just also want to stress that although there was a lot of fear and rightfully so around a recession, recessions are a normal part of the economic cycle and As an investor or as someone who's just trying to manage their personal finances, there are things that you can do to prepare yourself for a recession. Um, you know, just as an example, if you're an investor, keep a bigger cushion. You know, like there, there isn't, there might be an increased chance that you lose your job. Hopefully you don't. But if you're going to make an investment, maybe you keep. 12 months of reserves and where you used to keep six, um, examples like that. Um, and recently just actually, I was talking to, you know, Jay Scott, right. Um, we just had him on, on the market. He wrote the book on recession proof, real estate investing, and which is a great book. It's filled with tons of practical tips for how to prepare for this type of thing. Um, and you can also check out my conversation with him on the market. It just came out yesterday, um, about that, but I just think that, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily, like you said, have to be all or nothing, but there are things to keep in mind and you want to operate a little bit differently with the increased market risk that we're seeing right now. Um, and you know, it could be a year away. It could be two years away. No one really knows, but I think it's, it's prudent to at least inform yourself on what, what you can do as an investor to, um, you know, do as well as you can in a, in a potential recession.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that I've been giving advice that this doesn't apply to everyone, but when everything was going great, the whole dream of quit your job, just live off of your real estate income. It made more sense to a larger degree of people with this much uncertainty, with not knowing what's going to happen. We have ample time to prepare. It doesn't mean that nobody should be quitting their job and going full time in real estate, but less of the people that have that opportunity should be doing so. Uh, I think that if you're worried about a, a, risk, a layoff, which you should be if there's a recession coming, because like you said, that typically happens, now is a time to be improving your skill set. Okay. Can you learn how to be good at different things? That's when you should double down on the value that you bring as far as your work ethic to your employer, what you're capable of doing, not what a lot of gurus have been telling people is, hey, take my course, learn how to do real estate, and then you don't need to worry about a skill set in life. Your real estate is gonna take care of everything for you. And in essence, now is not the time to become less valuable or weaker. Now is a time to start preparing to become more valuable and stronger so that it when that does come, you're not knocked over. Like I look at it like there's a huge wave that's coming, right? I want to brace myself and be ready for it. I don't want to be looking the other direction thinking everything is fine.
2: Yeah, I completely, completely agree. And I actually think if you look, you know, the economy right now is a little confusing because there are these red flags, but there are opportunities right now. And I think the biggest opportunity is if you want to change industries and find a job that's more personally fulfilling to you or has more income, this is one of the best times, at least in my lifetime, and I think in American history, to try and find a new job. Workers have a lot of leverage right now. And as David was saying, that can really set you up for the long term. You can improve your debt to income ratio. You can have more money with which to invest in a, in you know, a couple of months. And that could really set you up. Um, of course, it's not the dream of financial freedom, but Given where the market is right now, I do agree that that can make a lot more
1: sense. Well, on the topic of a recession coming and cutting expenses and pinching pennies a little bit, there are many investors that will find themselves managing their own properties to try to keep their profit margins higher. Uh, because property management is going to become tougher to afford, quite frankly, when asset prices continue to increase. So today we are going to be interviewing an expert on this topic, Lawrence Jankalo, who is passionate about using technology to help make real estate investors' lives easier.
2: Okay, let's bring in
1: Lawrence. Lawrence Jankalo, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast.
2: Thanks, David. It's a pleasure being here.
1: Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your resume, uh, what your company Avail does, and then uh, how you got started in real estate?
0: Yeah, totally. Um, Well, I'll start with how I got started in real estate, I think, first. Um, I'm a do-it-yourself landlord. Got started in 2010. uh, Purchased a three-unit residential brownstone walk-up here in Chicago from a friend I used to work with, at Goldman, um, thinking, hey, passive income, who wouldn't want it? Took the dive. Uh, I think you quickly realize once you have one passive income is not really all that passive. And um, so that was my entrance into real estate. But I also at that time trying to manage an investment banking job, and this passive income proved to be a little too hard. And so decided along with a buddy, hey, this isn't how it should be for landlords and you know armchair investors. So left Goldman uh, to build a startup that really aimed at helping landlords manage their rental properties, uh, called Avail. And, uh, you, you, know, essentially it takes a lot of the operational pieces of running your business as a landlord and, and, uh, makes it all mostly automated. So, you know, finding and screening tenants, collecting rent online, uh, submitting and collecting maintenance tickets online, all of those things, uh, it just does it for you.
1: So you basically solved your own problems and then said, Hey, I fixed this. Now I'm going to offer this to other people.
0: Yeah. I mean, in some ways you have to, um, If, you know, no one was catering to small landlords in 2010, 2012. 2012 is when we started the business. But um, I I struggled for two years managing the rental property myself. And uh, you'll find that there's really no software back then. And still even today, outside of a handful that uh, is geared towards such a small landlord. Um, Mostly because the economics aren't there. Like, it's too risky of a business. It's really hard to find us. We're super fragmented. And um, so the only way to come about it is to solve your own problem. And yeah, and go from there.
1: And then, how did you get started investing in real estate yourself? Like, what was it that pulled you in? Did you have a, a friend that told you about it? Did you just read an article and get interested? Yeah, maybe
0: maybe it's embarrassing or cliche, but you know, uh, read rich dad poor dad, <laughs> college and always had aspired and you realizing, hey, you got to have a little bit of money. So, you know, after about six years of working in the real world, had enough to buy that first business. Um, and that, that's, I think, how most people kind of enter it is you, you have this dream of what it's supposed to be and, and then you buy it and uh, you start getting a little bit of income coming in. You're like, wow, this is great. Uh, and then you want to expand it. So today I've got just over 20 units that uh, started with just the humble three units in a single building. And um, uh, I I wouldn't change it for anything other than maybe trying to get it earlier.
2: Lawrence, you mentioned that one of the reasons for starting Avail is that you were struggling with your own rental property management. I think most of us have also been there, but I'm curious, what specific issues were you encountering that felt insurmountable or necessitated you start your own business to solve?
0: Yeah, for me, it started with just posting the listing on Craigslist, um, which I, people still do today, crazy enough. And the way Craigslist operated then is you'd post a listing and it would be at the top for about eight seconds and then it would drop to the bottom. And then the next day, 24 hours and one second later, you could go and post the next one. Uh, and it didn't make sense. And then you'd get these leads and you can't tell if they're quality or not, which, you know, spoiler alert on Craigslist, they're not. And, um, and then you try to figure, well, how do I know if these are good? good or not, and there's no access for some person who only has one or two or three units to actually get a credit score or background check. There's no capabilities for those things. So I find that access to information and data that a professional would have was impossible. So those were really the two starting points for me that we said, hey, we're going to go build this. And um, that's how we started. And in Chicago, it's really tough finding um VCs that want to invest in you particularly in 2012. And it's really tough finding engineering talent. So my co-founder actually rolled up our sleeves and taught ourselves to code. I wrote the first six hundred thousand plus lines of code. Um, and when you're when you're doing that yourself, you kind of you really make it what what it should be and what it should be for landlords like me. And so that was The first two problems we solved was listing syndication and tenant screening.
2: How have you seen, uh, you know, starting and managing properties in 2010, I imagine was pretty different than how it is now. So what are some of the big changes that you've seen in the property management industry over the last 12 years?
0: Yeah, well, certainly the pandemic changed uh, a lot. Um, In 2010, if I'm remembering correctly, it just felt a little more even keeled between landlords and renters. So I, I remember doing showings and kind of, you, it was a lot more of a barter and a trade trying to make sure you landed those renters. Um, and, you know, like, Hey, sure. Here's all these features and I'll give you $200 towards moving or whatever it is. You to, yet to make some concessions a little bit then. And now it's completely gone the other way around. Um, it, I get 20 or 30 visitors to uh, a property and it can only take one. And so it, it's completely changed, and that's forcing rents to go up. It's forcing people to compete with each other. People are are not getting places. They they're t- there's a, there's a whole lot of maybe land. It's it's a lot more favorite towards the landlord now than it used to be. So that that's maybe the biggest change in the technology's come about quite a bit. So back then it was common to find renters on Craigslist. It was common to receive a check uh, in the mail, and now it's just it's not that common to to not have some sort of technology behind you.
1: So Lawrence, obviously we are in a very complicated market right now. There is a shortage of inventory. Prices continue to go up. Demand seems very strong. But now rates are going up at the same time that inflation is occurring. So what I kind of see happening is that the price of the assets is rising with inflation. But the ability for a tenant to pay the higher rents that are going up may not be in certain markets because their food, their gas, all the things they have to pay for are going up just proportionately to what they are able to make it work. So we kind of have this like stretch where I feel like the top of the market is getting hotter and then, the but the downside is also growing in risk also because your tenants having a harder time paying their rent. From your perspective on all of this, what do you think is the biggest challenge that real estate investors are facing with this very unique market we're in right now?
0: the data is going to show that renters pay their rent, you know, for the most part. So I don't know that getting your rent is going to be the biggest issue, but there, it, maybe it's going to start coming in a little later than you normally would have as they try to make ends meet. I think the bigger issue is for those who are trying to grow their portfolio, they're going to find it extremely difficult to find deals that they wanted because pr- prices are going up still, even though it in, uh, inflation is going, it, it's in line with inflation, so it makes sense that it's going up, but interest rates should have brought prices down and they're not. So it's going to be hard to find those deals. Um, and of course, your cost now of ownership is tougher. So, and then you'll find that if you want to liquidate or get out of your portfolio, counter to everything, also prices, um, because they're up, you're going to find it harder to liquidate and, and get out of uh, what you want if you needed to. So we'll find that I think transaction volume will come down a lot and um, that hasn't happened yet. So that's more of a prediction. So we'll, we'll see yeah. if that comes out. At the same time for renters, I think we might, and this is another prediction and I'm not an economist, but this is just my own personal belief. I think there's a decent chance we go through a period of stagflation. So normally you'd raise interest rates to stop inflation, but I think in this case, um, inflation is going to keep going up, which makes affordability and Cost of living also go up, but everyone it's less affordable. So we might hit a recession, even though there's tremendous growth in prices, and, and that could cause a period of stagflation. So you could see some spiraling out of control in this way.
1: I think that's a really solid point to highlight because there's errors that are made in real estate, I think, where people just make assumptions that they shouldn't. So I noticed this happened with the phrase HELOC for a long time it was just synonymous with bad business decision because HELOC's led to a lot of foreclosures, okay? I'll hear the, the, the phrase appreciation tied to speculation, which they're not the same thing, but people will do that. There's another concept that every recession will lead to a crash in home prices, that the two are tied together. And I don't believe that that's the case. In fact, I think in three out of the last four recessions, home prices continue to rise. Dave, you're shaking your head. Am I wrong here?
2: No, no, you're exactly right. Okay. It, it, that's exactly right. It's, you know, the last recession is obviously freshest on people's mind. And that was a dramatic decline in home prices. But there are plenty of examples over the last several decades where home prices did increase during recessions.
1: And that's because the last recession was caused by the market crashing. Like you almost can't even tie them together because you you think recession leads to home prices. Well, the last time it was home prices crashing led to a recession. So those that are sitting there saying, hey, home prices are going to drop because we're raising rates, that's going to lead to a recession. It doesn't make logical sense if you understand the way that the economy works, because most people that own real estate already had a lot of money. They're the ones that weather recessions. They're in a position to do better. Do you mind just sharing your opinion on that idea and what you're thinking when it comes to if we do head into a recession, how you're going to handle your finances?
0: Yeah, and I'll, I'll admit it's been a while since I've dusted off an economics textbook here. But um, in a, in the most basic sense, right, it's all driven by supply and demand. So it's I agree with both of you. It's not necessarily a given that during a, a recession um, that housing prices come down. Uh, now historically, there has been a, a correlation because when there's a recession, people have less money and then that makes demand come down. I think what's happening now is exactly what Dave said. People have a lot of money built up and it's just sitting there. So they, they have money that they want to do something with. And a lot of that's just been accumulation over the pandemic because they haven't gone on vacation or, or whatnot. And at the same time, supply is still at a low. And so when supply is low and demand is the same or even growing, you would expect that prices for housing is still going to increase Um, and therefore not come down. And I think that's what we're seeing uh, despite interest rates going up.
4: Remember when you had to pay to get a leads phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Transform your lead generation and deal making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at DealMachine.com/bp. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling:
3: Did I lock my back door? How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three-week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award-winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Then, when it's time to fund your next deal, they ask for your full financials, your blood type, your mother's famous spaghetti recipe, and a map to the fountain of youth. Sound familiar? You, you got all that handy, right? Why not switch to a lender who actually makes qualifying for a loan easy? A lender like Host Financial. Host Financial takes the tedious tax returns, endless W-2s, and time-consuming financial requests out of the picture. Their light doc and common sense underwriting guidelines mean frictionless transactions every time. You'll even be able to use the actual or projected income of the short-term or long-term rental you're looking to purchase or pull equity out of. That's what lending built for investors looks like. So take the next step and grow your portfolio faster. Visit hostfinancial.com to request a quote in as fast as 60 seconds, which is faster than this ad. If not, it's pretty close. That's hostfinancial.com. Again, that's hostfinancial.com. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers a targeted 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of net profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, are first in line to get paid. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of a physical asset mitigate downside risk. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by directing your funds from Wall Street to Main Street and supporting local economies. The investment is reserved for accredited investors. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com. pinefinancialgroup.com.
2: Lawrence, what are you seeing in the data about rent growth? Over the last year, it's proceeded at basically a breakneck, unprecedented rate. Uh, Recently, I've seen rates over 30% in certain markets, rent growing. It feels to me to be unsustainable, but I'm curious what you're seeing with rent growth and if you think this could continue or perhaps even slide backwards on the other end of the spectrum.
0: Yeah, you know, nationwide we're seeing rents are up seventeen percent year over year. So, which is an astronomical number, and o- over the last two years even higher. Um, most landlords, I think, you know, avails showing from our surveys that seventy five percent of landlords are planning on raising the rent. Tenants are telling us that on average their rents have gone up two hundred dollars or more over the last uh, year. So, rents are going up. Um, we're seeing that and I, that's going to cause it, it could it could go one, one of two paths. It could cause renters to uh, have turnover and start to look to move, look for cheaper alternatives um, could be leaving some of those more expensive cities. We're seeing a lot of folks move to more like the Sunbelt area um, just because those are generally less expensive than some of the larger metros on the coasts um, or the alternative is you might find that renters don't move. Now I know these are complete opposites and it's tough. It's tough to move when you know your rent at the next place for an equivalent sized unit is going to go up dramatically. What happens, especially for D- DIY landlords or the smaller landlords, is they don't really raise rent on tenants who are renewing or they don't raise it as much as they would for new renters. So you might see this bifurcation of renters who really stay um, to avoid those things. And then you'll see the other side where they're really trying to find a cheaper alternative and um, I don't know which way is going to push higher, but we'll see over the next coming months. The summer will be a big telling point.
2: It's interesting what you said about smaller landlords, not raising rent on existing tenants. I know that's something I've always sort of believed in is if you have a good relationship with a good tenant, why would you stretch that? Is that something that's backed up with data that you've seen at a avail or is that just a, an observation of yours?
0: Yeah. Um, both. I, although I don't have the data in front of me, so I can't quite quote it. But we are seeing that change this year from the historical patterns, too. I mean, real estate taxes have been going up, I think, everywhere in the United States. Costs of ownership for landlords have, are going up. So I think I think this year, and we'll see it come out over the summer, might be maybe one of the first years where you see even DIY landlords the smaller landlords skew towards raising rents on renewing tenants uh, at a higher rate than we've seen in the past.
1: Yeah. So that was part of my question is I'm wondering, do you see a future where it's difficult to raise rents on tenants, even though the asset price is going up because their ability to repay is being decreased by the money that they have left over at the end of the month because of inflation on your average daily things you have to pay for?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's always, diff- <laughs> Look, frankly, uh, as a human being trying to work with my own tenants and telling them, hey, I'm going to have to raise rents. And, and then if you're doing it in person, you can kind of see the the looks on their faces of, of shock. And it's it's a scary proposition for them. Um, so it makes it difficult on an emotional level to raise rents. It's not like I want to. Um, if I could keep making the same return I was before, then I, I wouldn't raise rents. And I think a lot of folks, uh, especially for the smaller landlords, they don't realize how little landlords actually make. I think they all think we're these super rich um, money makers who can just absorb it, but we actually don't. I think on the, the average landlord might make a hundred bucks on a rental property uh, a month. It's really not a lot. And any change in cost, now all of a sudden you're losing money. So you know, we have to stay in line and it, it's difficult for renters. It's difficult for us. In, inflation causes problems for everybody. And those problems are felt in the shorter term more so than the longer term. O- over periods of time, things kind of reach an equilibrium. You can adjust uh, you know, your own vendors that you're using to, to find cheaper alternatives, but in the short term, you, you really don't have a lot of options other than to raise rent.
1: So do you see do-it-yourself landlording as far as managing your own properties and fixing some of the stuff yourself as sort of a path that many people are going to have to take to make the numbers work as they continue to get tighter and tighter?
0: Yeah that's an interesting uh I don't know if that's a prediction on your end or not or if you're looking for me to make that prediction but uh, yeah I I could see that you know we we've historically advocated for being a do it yourself landlord for our own audience one because you learn the business better but two because if you don't you're paying those fees you just don't make money for most landlords paying a property manager to find a tenant for you and collect rent for you puts you in the red and Then it didn't make sense to buy the rental property in the beginning. You should just get out of that business. So I think you could see a change here where more and more landlords have to manage it themselves than previously.
1: Yeah, I can see. Like I was just looking at a short-term rental property in Scottsdale this weekend. And even with the the properties at best case scenario, crushing it as far as revenue, putting almost a million dollars down on some of these things, the numbers were barely breaking even and, and part of that was because management fees at like 20%, they could be like $80,000 a year. And I was thinking, you know, the only way this works is if I don't pay a manager 20%. That started my mind down to, well, what would this take? And I quickly was like, oh, I don't want anything to do with that. That seems so much work to be able to to get this thing going, especially with a short-term rental. But I'm sure if I thought that other people have got to be thinking the same thing, right? The margins are getting tighter. Where can I cut costs? There's going to be people that are thinking property management is the place to cut. So what advice do you have if somebody is going down that road for how they can prepare themselves for how to do this well, what they're really getting into, some tools they could use? Kind of speak to that person.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you're going down this path and you're, hey, all of these uh, expenses are growing on you, you want to start paying attention to that. Uh, most people in real estate will appeal their property taxes every chance they get, try to keep them lower. So if you, if your audience is listening and haven't done that, they should 100% do that. Um, you know, sometimes what whatever assessor's office is looking at these things doesn't really know the value. They just know it's gone up and sometimes they just do it more than it should. And so you can re- appeal those. Um, I would look if you have a property manager at renegotiating with that manager to reduce the fee or remove the manager. I think that's a a good avenue to go. If you just aren't in state or you just can't find a time to be on site, then maybe you you have less option there. So just um, I would call and and ask to go if you're paying 10% of rents, push it down to 5% or find a manager who's willing to do that. I think Uh, not that managers are a commodity, but in some ways you just don't have a choice. Um, I would also be thinking about um, how you're buying all of the supplies you're using for your rental. So if you have just one unit, you can't really get any kind of economies of scale. But if you've got a whole bunch of others, then try to keep it to be the same paint so that you can use the same paint in one place versus another. Try to think about all of the tools that can just be shared across all of your properties and whatnot. The, the, those things can help. Um, and like I said, most landlords only make a couple hundred bucks a, that can go a long way in, in getting you where you need to go.
2: So Lawrence, uh, what, you know, given the this confusing environment we're in, are you seeing a shift in the types of properties that people are renting or where rent is growing the fastest or just any of those dynamics?
0: Yeah, I mean, two, I think, trends that are noticeable. One is folks are looking for slightly larger places, even though affordability has gotten tougher. So we're seeing an increase proportionally for folks looking for two bedrooms over one bedrooms and three bedrooms over two bedrooms is increasing a little bit, um, mostly driven by the pandemic and the idea of, hey, people are working from home a lot more, um, afraid of maybe another lockdown and you need the space and, and whatnot. Um, so that's one trend. The other trend we're seeing is a lot of folks moving towards the Sun Belt a little more and, and away from the coasts. Um, potentially away from some of the areas that might have some natural disasters or are super expensive, so, so we're seeing those kinds of trends.
2: That's really interesting. I'm curious if you've if the rental market is also mimicking the housing market in a shift towards the suburbs because after 2008, the suburbs got absolutely hammered in terms of housing prices disproportionately to uh, you know ur- more urban areas, and then you know since the pandemic. Suburb housing prices have been leading the way. Is the same thing happening with rents?
0: Yeah, you're seeing that a little bit in um, like condos and in uh, more like congested places. Those the prices on those are coming down or at least not going up as much as you would see on a single family home uh, in the suburbs. People are looking for a little more breathing room. Um, And and so that's happening at the same time. And then those condo buildings are still aging. So the assessments are still going up. They become less affordable for folks. So both in terms of wanting more space to live in and from an affordability perspective, we're seeing uh, single family homes just do better than condos.
2: Yeah, I think that makes sense given all the other dynamics and shifts in buyer preferences right now and renter preferences.
1: So when it comes to what type of buyer you think is best to be getting into condos and who should be sticking to single families, uh, what's your avatar of where you think that the individual investor should, or what does that investor look like that should be getting into condos versus single family homes?
0: Oh, um, I don't know. Maybe I have a very narrow mindset on investing. Um, I'm the kind of investor that likes to see cash flow. So I I generally um, advocate for folks looking for deals that are going to make them cash, whether the, their metric is a cash on cash number, or they're looking at some sort of net operating income. I think you're going to find it easier uh, when you're dealing with some sort of um, uh, individual property. So a non-condo, for instance, a, a three flat or four flat, um, even a single family home, I think you can make those numbers work better than you can mm-hmm. in a condo. And have a little more control. And then um a lot of condos have uh bylaws and association rules that can prevent renters or the type of renting or how often they can come in and out. So there is a risk to your business in that way. So I um not that you shouldn't ever be an investor in a condo, but if you're looking for cash flow, that's probably not the best investment. There's there is potentially always the case for appreciation on those, but with where we're seeing trends and you know even with what Dave said around how folks are moving to the suburbs, maybe condos might not be the best investment right now.
1: Well, I'll also say if someone doesn't have experience with condos, how do I want to put this? When you're buying a single family home in general, in a specific market, you're looking at mostly the same things for every house. What does the inspection look like? The rents are not too hard to find. There's not as many variables when you're looking at single family homes. The second you get into condos, it becomes remarkably complicated. There, Those bylaws are different for every single one of them. Sometimes the the property itself has a lot of deferred maintenance and you're gonna get hit with assessments. They do have restrictions on how many people can be renting out units in there. So it, it becomes exponentially more likely that you're going to have something that you did not see coming up when you're buying into a condo, which is mostly the people that invest in those are really, really good at investing. They know, what to look for. So if you're not a big fan of jumping asset classes, what do you look for in a specific market that you think is attractive when it comes to where investors can be putting their attention?
0: Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I I love having multiple asset classes. So between real estate and non-real estate. Um, But again, I, I tend to focus on things that produce cash. So uh, there are certainly parts of the United States where investing in real estate is going to get you more cash and is less uh, about appreciation. I, I take Chicago, for instance. I just know the most about Chicago. Um, that's where I live. You, you can invest in an area of Chicago, maybe, uh, for instance, Andersonville, um, which is maybe less uh, well-known as like a neighborhood like Lincoln Park. And therefore, you're, you're going to get a better cash on cash or better cash flow uh, but maybe not a better long-term appreciation uh, of the asset class itself or asset value. Whereas Lincoln Park would be the exact opposite. It's, a, it's already very built out. Um, your cap rate or cash and cash is going to be a lot lower, but because it's such a sought after area, you might find that uh, appreciation is higher. So if you're the kind of investor who's looking to build net worth over the long periods mm-hmm. of time and don't care about the cash coming in today, then maybe that kind of area is better for you as, as your wealth might grow faster. You just won't see the cash from it as quickly, so you could take that approach into any city um, and choose neighborhoods in that way, or you could take it more holistically based on cities themselves. You could say Chicago is kind of already that built-up city, and you might want to move to a, a less built-up, move your money to a less built-up city. But for most investors, especially if they're getting started, the easiest path is is to do it where they live, um, where they where they can see it, get a feel for it, be there in case they need to, and um, they can find parts of their neighborhood where it makes sense.
2: I was gonna say, Lawrence, you seem to be suggesting a very simple and practical approach to getting started, which I always like, which is investing close to where you live, managing the property yourself. That's how I got started. I think how most people get started. What if someone is able to do that successfully and you know find a small multi or a single family? Uh, what are some of the common pitfalls you see with DIY landlords when they're first getting started? And do you have any tips for trying to avoid those pitfalls?
0: Sure. This don't this definitely goes into the realm of opinion for what it's worth. I, um, but there's, there's a couple, like there's this idea of, hey, um, am I going to be strict with how I have my budget? Am I not going to be strict? How strict should I be? And I, I think some landlords will misinterpret that. I think you want to have a budget and you want to be strict with it, but a lot of landlords will take that as an excuse to be cheap um, or have deferred maintenance. Uh, and in the end, that's going to hurt you uh, in a big way. So um, yes to budget, but don't interpret that budget means don't pay for things when they need repair. Your, your best bet is, of, is normally going to be preventive maintenance um, that's going to be less costly. You're, even the, some of the simple things like changing air filters is preventive maintenance, but some landlords don't want to spend the 20 bucks to replace an air filter. They think it's only breathing quality, and which is so important. But it, it, <laughs> it, it extends the lifetime of the HVAC system by years. So um, you can't be cheap, but you do have to be uh, wise with where you're spending money. I think that's a big pitfall. I'd say another is think is not thinking of your tenants as customers. They are customers. They're not just people that you are. Um, kind of, sometimes you get the sense of like you feel like you're better than them or not better than them, right? Because they're renting from you. And that's the worst possible approach to come in. They're your customers. You have to be doing things that make them want to live there um, and make them treat the property well you know, for all my tenants, I'll usually leave some sort of welcome basket on the kitchen counter for them when they move in. It's usually nothing more than toilet paper and maybe some cleaning supplies, stuff that they forget to have. But that sets us both off on kind of that right path and um, how we work together. And then they'll take better care of the property because of that. And that translates over time. And so there's, there's those things there. Um, I don't know if there, there's a Question in there around how do you go from one your first purchase to multiple because there's a lot of pitfalls in there thinking around hey that um, the the second property is identical to the first and I'll do all of the same things that that can sometimes backfire you you do have to kind of uh, make sure you you're really looking at your investments as two separate businesses in a way and, and you have to individualize them in that way
2: that's great advice I think uh, that is probably the most common one is learning that you you really get what you pay for and if you go with cheap contractors, you're going to hire two contractors and you'll just hire the expensive one second after you already hired the first one. And I love what you said about uh, treating your tenants as customers. That's exactly right. Your, your home is a, the, the product, the property that you're offering is a product and you are, this is a business and it's your job to make your customer happy. And I think a lot of people don't view it that way. So I definitely respect that uh, opinion. Uh, before we get out of here, I also wanted to ask since you have so much knowledge about this, do you have any best practices or pitfalls with tenant screening that you can share with our listeners?
0: Yeah. You know, when we started, we had seen, uh, I started a veil, we had seen an article, I think it was in USA Today, um, that said, hey, you know, 60% of landlords don't screen their tenants. Uh, so that's, that's the number one pitfall, I would say, right? You, you should screen your tenants in some manner or the other. I think what happens is a lot of landlords get scared that they won't fill a vacancy and they'll just take the first renter that they see or they, they, they won't dig in a little deeper thinking that, hey, the renter's going to bounce and go to another place. But I, I think in the end, you'd rather have a vacancy than a bad tenant because a bad tenant is going to have all of the negatives of the vacancy. You're not going to be making your money. Uh, or you're collecting your rent, but they're also going to just trash the place or have the potential to trash the place. And um, although a bad renter can sometimes be seated because you're a bad landlord, um, and you don't know how to build a relationship with them. Oftentimes, there are things that you would find in doing whatever screening reports. So checking with prior landlords, you know, did they pay the rent on time? How do they treat the place? Um, You know, looking at their credit score, you know, how they treat Other creditors is likely how they might treat you. Just even looking to see how much debt they have, can they afford the rental? Um, Sometimes landlords will look at income uh, to rent, but they won't look at how much debt that income is taking up too. And so you might miss that. You might think, hey, they have three times the you know income to rent, but when you factor in debt, they don't. And so that's something to look at. Um, Depending where you live and what laws there are in your state, I I would suggest also criminal and eviction checks. I think eviction being the most serious like once someone's been evicted a couple times they it's probably a trend that's going to continue to happen um and then you know of course you want to make sure um you feel comfortable approaching the renter should something happen so um I, i tend to try to avoid super violent criminal history um and be flexible with things that aren't you know like I'm not going to balk at someone having a speeding ticket necessarily. It's got nothing to do with them and their capability of paying their rent. So there's lots of things in that realm where you first screen them and then just be kind of flexible in in your approach and thinking.
1: I think choosing tenants is an extremely underrated element of successful real estate investing. So if you think about the advice that you're often given, invest in a good area what you're really saying is put yourself in a position where you're likely to find a better tenant. It's not the area, it's the person who's gonna be renting from you. You could rent in any neighborhood, anywhere. If you have a good tenant, it's going to work out for you. In fact, that's often how people uh, start or why they start looking into markets with lower price points because the price to rent ratio was higher, it just becomes more difficult to find the tenant that's going to pay consistently and not ruin your house. So if you're going to be self-managing, the ability, the skill to choose the right tenant will absolutely have a huge impact on the success that you have with real estate investing. Um, when it comes to like technology within real estate. Can you just share your opinion on where you think that's going? What what different technological advances will have an impact on the way that we manage rental property?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, not to... Plug Avail, which is you know my company, but some sort of landlord platform um, is pretty critical in running your business. And there are others out out there other than Avail, but you, you need to have something. Um, that's that's one I recommend. And I think we're going down the path where everybody will have one of those. It's right now it's pretty uncommon for uh, a landlord to use technology. Um, so. there's this this wide gap to bridge because the folks who don't use technology aren't going to do as well and they're going to start doing worse than the folks who do use technology. So if you're one of those listening and you're not using some sort of landlord platform, just go out and Google landlord tools or landlord software or Avail and and start using something. Um, I think there's also technology around making like showings a lot easier, better. Um, Those are still typically done in person, even if you're using something like a veil, And I, you know, with the pandemic, there's been a lot of new technology that's come around for virtual showings for 3d tours, for floor plans, some of those things, the price has been outside of the realm for someone who's got three units or something like that. So, but there are a bunch of providers who are bringing very affordable tools that allow you to do a, a, a 3d tour or something like that virtually that are coming about. And th- I think that's a trend that we'll continue to see. I think we're also starting to see software and tools that are also geared towards helping renters more than they have in the past. So whether it's helping renters report their on-time rent payments or um, helping renters better manage how they um, save for a down payment or how they become first-time home buyers, all of those things are coming out. And I know um, at both Avail and Realtor, we're we're focused on trying to figure out, hey, how do we bridge that gap between renters becoming first-time home buyers. how do we help them communicate better with their landlords all of those things and um so i think that's going to be a huge change in in how real estate's going to be done
2: lawrence one last question particularly on the technology side before we go uh i'm assuming you're familiar with the idea of web3 and hearing about a lot of the direction that real estate is going with nfts and crypto do you have any thoughts on where that side of things are is heading right now yeah, I um to,
0: to be frank, I, I don't have as much of a background on some of those areas as I should, but um the, the advice I would give for most landlords is what we talked about earlier, which is you know try to keep it simple for now. I think if you're wanting to participate in some of those NFTs or think about blockchain or those things, it may still be too early for most people to consider. Um, And I would follow the path of what's going to get me the metrics I need to be successful and and focus on finding good deals, finding good renters, um, and being a responsible landlord. And then as you get experience, if you start to say, hey, I need this deeper technology to make my process uh, better or Eke out this little last bit of return somehow, then maybe incorporate that into how you're doing things. But for most folks, I think it's probably a little still premature.
2: I'm with you for the record. <laughs> I think it's it. There is a, some really interesting things going on there. Um, but does it is it actually at a point where it helps your business? I haven't seen any examples of how it's truly adding value. To a small landlord's ability to generate a solid return and to provide a good product. Yeah,
0: i, I have a renter. I have one renter who pays in Bitcoin every month, which is really? fine. Um, it's more of a nuisance than anything else for me as a landlord. I, I will I acquiesce because you know it makes uh, makes it easier for them. Um, it's a pretty it's a pretty expensive rental. It's nearly five thousand dollars a month, which is you know. In the schemes, it's pretty pricey rentals. And so I, I kind of allow it. But for me, it means I, I, I get it into Coinbase. I've got to immediately convert it to U.S. dollars. And um, I don't want to take the risk. I don't want to conflate my investment in real estate and the cash flow generates with the speculative investment of Bitcoin or digital currency valuations. And so I always have to separate those two and treat them as two separate investments. So it's more of a pain for me than, than an opportunity.
2: Just logistically, is the is the price fixed is there a floating exchange rate between USDs and Bitcoin and he adjusts the amount of Bitcoin based on the dollar price or the other way around?
0: Yeah, um I'm not sure what it looks like when you go into Coinbase to schedule your payment or whatnot, whether you're scheduling it in dollars and it converts in real time to Bitcoin, or if he's doing the conversion on his own. But when it comes to me, it's Bitcoin and then I have it automatically convert to US dollars right away. And uh, I, I think it's important for landlords to do that because, or for any investor to do that. I th- I'm not suggesting people don't invest and I'll use air quotes on invest in crypto. It's just, you should separate the two investments. They have two separate theses. They have two separate metrics and how you want to analyze them. And I don't think we should conflate the investment of rentals with the investment of cryptocurrencies. Um, I would take the cash in dollars. And then if I find, Hey, I think crypto is a good investment. I would then do a separate
1: transaction for those things. You know, there's something I find very interesting about every single investment asset class opportunity that I don't hear people talking about just sort of the bigger pockets audience. I'm going to let you guys in on a concept to think about. And then Lawrence, I want to get your opinion on it. When we talk about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, real estate, art, NFTs, stocks everything the value of it is expressed in terms of the dollar so when something goes up or down we have to take its value convert it into a dollar and express how well it did in relation to a dollar right if so there it's all tied to this central currency you can't say this house is worth this many Bitcoin or this many shares of Apple stock or whatever. We have to have like a baseline that we compare it to. But as we have printed so much money, the value of the dollar has gone down. And now it's very difficult to know how much value, and I'm using the word value as opposed to like worth or money because I'm trying to separate it from the dollar because we typically express value in terms of dollars. What's your thoughts on how confusing this is to leading people to believe they're actually building wealth when they may not be or some asset classes appearing like they're doing better than they really are?
0: Yeah, that's almost there's almost a, uh, like a history lesson of going off like the gold standard, uh, Mm -hmm, behind your But mm -hmm. Well, I'll spare us. Um, I tend to think of investments as something different than speculation, right? I, I don't believe an investment is gambling and some people will, they'll say, Hey, investing in the stock market is gambling or buying a rental property is gambling, but I I don't believe that to be the case. I think, um, investing is something about taking earnings or cash flow, figuring out what that cash over a period of time is worth to you today. And, uh, you can't do that with something like cryptocurrency because there is no cash flow that's occurring. There's no, and there's no mm-hmm. money to, there's no inputs and outputs happening there. So mm-hmm. for that reason alone, you can't necessarily consider it an investment. I would consider it to be speculation, and that's fine. Maybe in a fully, um, in a good allocation strategy, maybe you leave five percent of your portfolio for some crazy thing like that. I, I think of art is the same way, right? As speculation because it doesn't produce income. I can't really. Discount that cash flow to what it's worth today, but stocks and, and, you know, income properties are investments. And I think even though the dollar can fluctuate in value relative to those investments, you you have a sense of, are you making money? Is it appreciated or not rents? Like your, the value of your rental is nothing, nothing more than some, um, Multiple on the rents, right? And depending on what area you're in, the multiple is a little different. But you can broadly think about it as like a 12 times multiple on rent is how much the property is worth. Um, 12 times annual rent, and and you can look at that and say, hey, my, my investment's improving over time or not improving over time, and it all comes down to you increasing rents over time. And the same thing is true of stocks, right? You you hope that the earnings increase each year so that the multiple on earnings um, has an impact on now what your investment was was goes up, and that all of that should be. Um, irrelevant to what happens with the dollar because those earnings uh, change in lockstep with the dollar as it changes.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Lawrence. This has been a fascinating interview where we've gotten actually some really good nuanced detail about many different types of real estate investing. So I want to thank you for taking some time to to do this with us. Before we get out of here, David, do you have any last words or any last questions that you'd like to address?
2: No, thank you, Lawrence. This has been really enlightening. I appreciate your deep knowledge and data-driven uh, approach to providing answers to our listeners here.
0: Well, David, Dave, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Don't fact check me too hard. Uh, if you find anything inaccurate in there, uh, we'll talk about it in a separate time. <laughs> Appreciate being on the show.
1: All right, Lawrence, last question for you. Where can people find out more about you?
0: Um, you know, I love interacting with people on a one-on-one basis. So they can certainly learn more about availarealtor.com on our website, so avail.co or realtor.com. But uh, if people want to talk with me, I love receiving emails. Uh, I respond to them. They can reach me at Lawrence.jankolo at realtor.com.
1: Would love to engage with folks. Awesome. Dave Meyer, where can people find out more about you?
2: You can find me on Instagram where I am at the data deli.
1: Yeah. And if you have not been following Dave, please go do so. His uh, page is blowing <laughs> up. On YouTube, your videos are crushing it. I don't know if it's your handsome face, if it's your well-articulated delivery, but you've got this, you're like that sandwich that someone put together and everyone is addicted to it and you're selling like hotcakes.
2: Comparing me to a sandwich is the best compliment I've ever gotten, David. You're going to make me blush.
1: In fact, we might even have to stop calling it hotcakes. We're going to have to say you're selling like Dave Cakes. Because that's how fast <laughs> you're actually selling.
2: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And hopefully, people do come check out uh, the new YouTube channel because I, I am on the main Bigger Pockets channel, but also I'm going to be transitioning more to the on the market. YouTube channel uh, where we're going to be doing a lot more data, news, current event type shows. We have all sorts of great content coming out there. So make sure to check that out.
1: There you go. And Lawrence, thank you for fighting the good fight of trying to make landlords jobs easier and make it more successful to invest in this awesome asset class. We are sort of under fire from hedge funds and institutional capital and uh, municipalities that don't like real estate investors and politicians that don't like real estate investors. There's a lot of different people that are uh, sort of making it more difficult to do what we love doing. So anytime we get somebody on our side, helping to push the ball forward, I really appreciate that. Well, thanks again for having me. All right. I'll get us out of here. This is David Green for Dave, Dave Cakes Meyer signing off.
3: The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and BAM! Instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes
1: only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best
3: judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to
1: lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.